in a series, we are talking about how to help followers of Jesus who are so excited and passionate about sharing their faith, sharing the hope that Jesus is, the life that Jesus is, what Jesus has done in our salvation. Like we want other people to get to know how wonderful Jesus is, but oftentimes in conversations or even you know, in the, in the process of tr trying to get a conversation about Jesus, there are certain elephants in the room. There are certain issues that come up about what Christians believe, uh, we believe, about things like transgender, same-sex relationships, uh, a lot of the elephants in the room. So that's what this whole series is about. So if this is your first Sunday, uh, there's a few that you can go back and listen to. Uh, today, we're talking about genocide, okay? Genocide, um, why would, you know, a loving God uh, tell, you know, Israel... Joshua to come into the Canaanites and just wipe them all out, men, women, and children, that kind of issue, those kinds of questions. So that's where we're going today. But before we do, um, I just wanted to remind us of this verse, and I want to pray for us accordingly. First uh, Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord uh, as holy, uh, meaning like he's the most devoted, you're, you're most devoted to him. He's in your heart the most important, always being prepared to make a defense that is give an answer. So the reason I want to begin with that and pray for us is that's, that's the posture that I want you to have. Like right now, I don't, no, no matter how old you are, or what grade you're in, or you know, what season of life you're in, um, I want you to have this posture from this sermon. Can I navigate? Can I answer these kinds of questions can I give a reason for the hope that I have to anyone who asks? Um, and so I want to stop and pray for that. I want to pray that we would be serious in our devotion to sharing the good news. Like, I want us to pray for that. I want you to pray because we've been learning a lot, but I don't know if we're more bolder. Like, I don't know about if we're like, just, we have this greater courage and we need the spirit. So I want to ask you, if you want prayer, for boldness. I want you to pray with me in your heart and your mind and just, just ask God, like ask God this morning to, to help, help you know, like if the resurrection happened, it, it means it's all true. Like God, help me have this in my work tomorrow and in my life that this really happened, that Christ is alive. The songs I just sang, no condemnation, it's just that like my neighbors need to hear it and they need to hear it from me. And so I just, you gotta pray for that. We have to pray, for, I wanna pray for that. Um, so that's what I wanna do. I want you to ask for courage. Um, okay, it's, the other thing, why, you know, I gotta do one in-house thing. So one in-house thing. It's, um, it's never my favorite thing to talk about, but because God always shows up in this stuff, but it's my job, you know. So we're a family and you're all amazing at giving. You just, you are. Like last year's, if you were at the AGM, it was so, you were so generous. It was, a, it was awesome. But it's, you know, it's my job to just share with you where we're at as a family. So I just want to give you a quick picture of, of our giving. Okay, so if you're just brand new, we don't do this every Sunday. Uh, but I just, we need to share where we're at. And so if, if you're kind of new to the ministry and you haven't been giving, or maybe the Holy Spirit's about to give you more, maybe something's going to happen, I just want you to keep this in your radar. This is your church family. This is your sowing to the mission of, of making disciples and making Jesus known of the shore. 
Uh, and so just pray for that. You know, the verse, this is not like a slap on our hands, because again, you know, I think you're amazing. But uh, here's one verse that I want to share. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So just pray about this. If you're like, I'm giving a ton, just praise God, bless you, but just pray for it, okay? That's good. You can take that off. That's good. Uh, last thing you should know about before we pray and get into this message is um, next Sunday is Why Does God Allow Suffering? And uh, this is a family Sunday. So we're going to have all our kids, really important topic. Uh, so prep your, prep your grade school kids. You're, we're going to be talking about suffering, pain. Why does God allow evil? Now, if they've never asked you that, they've thought it. So this is going to be a phenomenal sermon for them. But if you want to pray with them, talk to them about it, prep them for it, that's next week, okay? Cool. Let me pray. Okay. And remember, I want you to pray, too. So don't just listen to me. Hey, Neil. All right. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I, I just I thank you that, that this is not... This is not easy. It's hard. As your word says, it, it will be hard to be a follower of Jesus. That we're, if we're called to save our lives for the next one, we lose it in this one. That we're called to take up our cross daily. And a lot of us feel the weight of some of these things. And this is not an easy topic. And I just, I pray for those areas in our hearts that we find it hard to trust you in. It may not even be about this, but it could be about something else today. And I pray that you'd release that. I pray that you'd enter into that place. And God, we just, we know like you will come again. We know Revelation pictures you as, as a victim as a victor with a sword coming out of his mouth to end evil and bring justice and that you're a good father and you your word says you even delight in the death of your saints because they just get to be home with you. And this is all real. It's real, it's real for everyone we go to school with or work with, this is all real. And I just, I pray we'd feel it. And you'd give us courage to share the good news, like share. Help us, Father. I just, I pray for boldness for us as a church. Like they didn't ask, they just prayed for more boldness to go out. Pray we'd be so courageous, we'd stop being weak. We would just love that we love you and that we're loved by you. And I know there's a spiritual battle in this room. Pray for your help. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd manifest the gifts that you've given me in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so here's the elephant we're going to look at. How can a God of love command the destruction of seven nations? Right? The God of the Bible, he's wiping out the Canaanites. What about the, you know, what about the poor, innocent? men and women and children uh, isn't that genocide so Richard Dawkins he's a famous atheist says not only is the 
basically, this is not a quote from him, but he basically says, not only is the Bible wrong, uh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Now, I can't pronounce all the words that he does here because he's got a really cool thesaurus, but I will do my best. Here's what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infant, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sedom- I should have learned all these, capriciously malevolent bully. That's, that is uh, from his book. But what do we say? Like, what do, you, what do we say? Where do you start? You know, certainly we know that Jesus spoke of hell and judgment more than any other author of scripture or person in scripture that the author has recorded. We know from uh, places like Hebrews 13, eight, that the God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And like I just prayed right now, I mean, the imagery is of Jesus coming back to end evil. So it's not, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he just had a few like anger fits. He was just getting stuff out. Uh, and now he's, he's straightened things out and Jesus came and he's totally different. And you should look at Jesus because he's nicer and he's matured a little bit. No, that's, that's, we don't believe that as, as Bible teaching Christians. The cross is the center of our hope. More judgment and infinite wrath was revealed there than the whole Bible combined. Like Galatians says, Jesus bore the curse of the world. Like for God so loved the world that he, that he sent his only son to bear, as 1 John says, the propitiation, which is the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sin. So, there's, so, so we can't use that. So well, what do we say? And let me ask you, this is because this is this personally, you need to ask yourself, how do you navigate and feel around certain texts? Like when you're in your Bible reading plan, I don't know if you've ever you know, been reading your Old Testament and here's the verse, here's one of the verses that comes up. And this is one of the more like nicer sounding ones. But when the Lord your God brings you into the land, it'll be on the screen, that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous than, and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, and you must devote them to complete destruction, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Like, here's my question. Do you have a grid, uh, a way of understanding, a, a heart that trusts and understands the story by which you see God's goodness and his character. Like when it asks, or when it asks yourself this, when it comes to the Old Testament, do you have a a hermeneutic of suspicion? Like, do you look at it and go, "Mm, I don't know, I just, I mean, and, and here, this, I have seen Christians spin out on this elephant in the room, like really spin out in their faith. Um, like how you and I personally think about and navigate this question is really, really important. And I just want to commend the women's Bible study um, 
ministry because they have for the last like at least year been been teaching God's story. There's a there's a class I want to highlight or or a women's day or teaching that I want to highlight. So here it is. This is um, the story of scripture that that it's a women's event that you should go to. You just click on it on the website. They're going to trace the whole Bible story. Do you know that story that you can that you can enter into God's story and go I I see his purposes and love and like do you have that kind of grid or do you come to it not knowing God's story and just kind of uh, let's skip to Matthew where he says, don't slap, you know, don't punch anyone. Um, so where do we begin? This, this one, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to try to answer these questions today. Um, so one question I would ask, so let's say you're in the, you're in the moment, you know, like you're at lunch or whatever with your friend and, and you've been talking to them for a while or, or maybe just, and they bring up this elephant in the room Here's the first question I think you need to ask. Okay, you should write this down or, or type it into your phone. Uh, it'll be on the screen. I would ask them before you get into answering this, number one, I would ask them, is this question your most serious and most important question? Or is this, is this question your hardest question? I would ask them that. That is, if I can answer this question, are you prepared to accept all the other questions you have could be answered? Because the reason you want to start with this one, this one takes a little bit longer to navigate and you really want to assess, are they genuinely asking? So if you could answer this well, is this the most serious question? Is this the most important question? I would just ask that. Find out what's going on in their heart. Get to learn a little bit. First way to navigate this, though, begins, I'm going to give you two points. They're, they're, they're not like you know easy to remember points, but they're just how we're going to preach through the sermon and here they are. First, you need to begin with your own heart, specifically in regards to considering the trustworthiness of God's character. So the first way you're going to answer is you need to, you need to consider the trustworthiness of the character of God. This is, this is a base starting point. You start with the character of God. The second thing we'll look at is you want, you want to help them consider if they're going to judge the morality of a story they need to consider it from the point of the story, not a naturalistic, world, watered-down version of it. So I'm sorry, grammatically, those sentences don't make sense. But that's where we're going, okay? Okay, thanks. Uh, first, consider the trustworthiness of God. A.W. Tozer, probably the best sentence in his book on attributes of God, says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is so true. Trusting in God, in, in this being, as he's mainly revealed himself in the word of God, is so important. So because uh, I'm looking at this summer, or maybe next summer, but this summer or next summer, doing a whole summer series on the attributes of God because they're so it's so important we know our God. But let me ask you this. Do you know what it means for God to be God? Like, as he's revealed himself, do you know what it means for God to be infinite? Do you know what it means for him to be eternal? And then his attributes, like the ones he's communicated, like 
he's eternally and omnisciently all wise. And do you know what it means that he is holy? So all his omniscient, eternal, wise things are also holy things, that, that he's also good. Do we know what it means to, do you know the nature and character of, of God? That is a huge anchoring point. Do you know what it means that God is anthropomorphic? Things like that. Those are big things that you as followers of Jesus need to get in the bedrock and anchor of your faith. Just period. It's so key. Here's two resources I recommend, highly recommend. I'll put them in the, in the sermon notes. Uh, the Attributes of God by Tozer. And this next one here, uh, this is a devotional by Mark Jones. I don't know if we have it. Yeah, right here. God is. This is the best book on the Attributes of God I've read. And I did it as my study last year. So I would pick it up and start in January. It's one attribute of God a week. It's phenomenal. Um, so what's amazing, sure, is the whole story of the Bible reveals a God working out his grace, his love, his redemption in the broken, fractured stuff we've been talking about in the fall creation and all that. Um, in fact, the Old Testament begins with God being right and just in his judgments. And when asked, when God is asked, who, you, who are you in the Old Testament, the most repeated character, and so you need to know this when you're talking to your friend, um, the most repeated characteristic or the way God reveals himself is, is this. This is the most common one. So this Exodus 34, 5 to 7. The Lord descended in the clouds and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding. This is a word that means remarkable out of the ordinary in magnitude, abounding, remarkably out of the ordinary in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God's self-revelation of who he is, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. So he's just in all of those things. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Nehemiah later on after, after you know, the, the destruction of uh, the temple and the rebuilding it, and he's, he's bringing back this revival. Here's what he says about uh, what he's calling the people back to. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God. Here's his posture, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake. This word means did not leave behind or did not abandon. Some of you have had Satan tell you in your ear, God has abandoned you. That's a lie from hell. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who come upon you. So your first response is, you, I don't think you've read the Bible. You gotta read this book. You got to see what he says about who you are. Would you consider that? Consider the character of God. So, so follow me here. Everything God commands 
flows from his goodness, holiness, love, which means all he does is right, which means the right thing to do is what God commands. So here's where it gets a little tricky. Someone might say, well, then are you saying God can command you to do the most horrible thing and it's the right thing to do? Well, no, because God cannot command you to do absolutely anything. No more than God can do anything. So let's talk about this because this is where you have to really focus on the character of God. The Bible says there are some things God cannot do. Right? The Bible says God cannot lie. Okay? You know, he cannot create another God greater than himself. He cannot make himself not exist for five seconds. There are many, eight seconds. Ten, we can, there's an infinite amount of things God cannot do. God cannot tell you to worship Satan. Why? Because that's inconsistent with his character. He can't. God's not arbitrary. God, again, he cannot lie. He's holy. He's almighty. Now, here's what this means. Almighty means he has the power to affect everything consistent with his character. Almighty means he has the power to affect everything consistent with his character. Deuteronomy 32, 4, four says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. So that's your grid. You're reading the Bible, all his ways are, you know him, you love, you see him the same. You, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. He cannot sin morally and upright. This word upright is a word that means morally good or moral excellence is he. So we need to begin with these good truths. So, so sure, in your grid and heart, you know who God is, how he's revealed himself to be. On the other hand, we also need to understand that in normal life, there are things you can do if you have authorization that without authorization would be wrong for you to do, okay? I remember, <laughs> Casey never loved this, but uh, I remember being at staff at Westside and like Westside would have these huge, you know, like events like World of Dance or like the Nutcracker. And because I was on staff, I could do things because I had authorization as a staff member that no one else could do with the security would stop them. Like I could go literally backstage to the same fridge as all the dancers because I was on staff. So, right, you know this in the business world, like it's wrong, morally wrong if you sign a check, if you don't have the authorization to do so. But if you've been given authorization, it now becomes morally okay. So on the particular issue of the Canaanites, of, which is, um, well, let me say this way, of taking someone's life, there is one person who's able to authorize the taking of life, and that is the author of all life. Now, again, that doesn't mean God can tell you to do absolutely anything, but that God can command you to do something which would have been bad, which is in the Ten Commandments, if he had not commanded you or authorized you to do. Now, someone, you know, that doesn't sound good. Someone might say, James, isn't it always morally wrong to take someone's life? Well, 99.9% yes course. Again, it's one of the commandments of God. Like this is, we, we have this moral intuition because there's a God. We know genocide isn't great, not because survival of the fittest, because if we believe that, we'd be like, well, that might be fine. But if we have that intuition because there's a God, it's in our conscience. We know that. 
But I would ask the person, because this is a strong argument. This is a tough one. I would ask them this question. Are you saying that no one could ever be authorized to take innocent life? Now, that person more than likely will have to think about it and then say, well, no, because we do have instances where, where that happens. So take, for example, 9-11. There was a jet. Many of you were there. Some of you youth weren't, but, but if you were there and watching it live, we knew that there was a jet that never made it to one of the targets because the terrorists um, were taken out on the inside, which was amazing. But they went down over Pennsylvania, if you remember. But one of the things, if you learn about it more, is when it was known about that plane and it was heading towards a target, the president gave an executive order to scramble his jets and ask all the planes in the air to intersect, talk to them, and if they didn't respond in the right way, they were to shoot them down. Now, is that morally right or wrong? Most would say it's not obviously morally wrong. Right, people would ask, like, would we have held the president responsible if he had ordered to shoot down such a jet if it really was heading towards a more populous area? But you can debate about the ethics. It's not obvious that it's morally wrong. So in fact, in extreme circumstances with the authorization, we could say perhaps a pilot and a jet could be authorized to take innocent life. Now, that's absolutely exceptional. And I want to make the same case about the Old Testament that what we see when we come to the destruction of the Canaanites, which is not repeated, is something as exceptional as the other thing that happened on 9-11. But here's my first building point. The more you find out about God's character as revealed in the story of God's redemption through judgment, because he's God, you will have a proven character you can trust. It's really interesting. When it comes to the Canaanites, God in Genesis 15 says that he is not going to judge them for 400 millennia until, quote, I should have had it up here, this, the sins of the Canaanites have reached their full. So 400 years, his first response to them, and you'll, we'll learn about them in a second here, is not judgment. It's grace. I don't think that anyone could argue that God for 400 years was not long suffering and executing his judgment. So that's number one. Let me just say it this way. The sorts of things that you're prepared to do when you trust someone already are very different from the sorts of things that you would do if you didn't trust them. So if Nikki, you know, texts me, hey, can you do something? And I'm like, this is really weird. I would trust her character, it's been, it's been proven, it's trustworthy that I'm gonna be like, well, she's got some up her sleeve, but I would do it. But, but if it was a stranger who texted me to do something that's kind of strange, I would be like, I don't really wanna trust you. Okay, so, huge anchoring point for you, the nature and character of God, but here's, here's what we need to do. Those who attack or use this argument will say, Usually two things. I mean, I mean if, you're as, if you're as atheist, some people are asking because they really have a heart and have a hard time understanding, which I think is the best heart. Others already believe there's no God, this never happened, and let's just try to make you kind of stutter a bit. 
they'll either say the story of Joshua either didn't happen or it's unfair. So how should we respond? How do you respond? I think you begin where, where I said you begin in the character of God, but then you need to ask them to consider the story. So with grace and love, you need to point out that if we're looking at the morality of a narrative, whether or not it happened is strictly irrelevant, okay? Um, Peter Williams, he's the warden of Tyndale House in Cambridge, England, has been incredibly helpful for me in forming this thought. <clears throat> As he points out, it's most common that, posing, that those posing their arguments against the Bible tend not to evaluate the whole story as it is, but rather they critique a naturalistic story of their own making, a story where God doesn't really exist and men are evilly using the idea of God to achieve their nefarious ends, like genocide. So like I said, again, this, I'm wearing the professor jacket, so you're getting a lot of just apologetic-ish stuff right now. Um, I, I can't judge the morality of Odysseus in Odyssey, factoring out the characters, like factoring out Athene because I don't believe Athene exists. I've got to treat Odysseus and his interactions with Athene as real when I'm looking at the morality of the narrative. Okay, to put it more simply, think of the cartoons we watch. Okay, to use one we all might know, maybe some of the teenagers won't know, but maybe you've seen this. Uh, you know, take... Take Tom and Jerry's world, okay? Here it is. One of the things you may notice if you watch Tom and Jerry is that different physical laws, okay, appear or apply in their universe differently. Okay, here's another image. The, the reason many parents let their children watch Tom and Jerry or these kinds of cartoons is we believe our children have sufficient discernment to be able to know that if they try this on their brother or sister, uh, I don't know where they're going to get TND, but the hammer one, the physical effects won't apply. What's my point? If we're going to judge the fairness of the story, I think it's only fair to look at the story world that I'm looking at. In other words, we can't judge the morality of Jerry's actions against Tom or Tom against Jerry's thinking of our physical laws. That's not actually entering properly into understanding the story. So in order for an atheist to critique the morality of the story in the Old Testament, they have to enter into that story. Now, this is where you need to, you need to uh, be ready to write down. They can't omit him, omit him from the story. So... William says, if we're going to consider the story, we have to consider all the details in the story, including all the characters in the story, and one of them, by the way, is called God. So, here's, he's a character in the story, and you can't say, well, I don't believe in God, so as I'm judging the story, I'll kind of omit him from the story. That's not fair. Okay, so here's what Dawkins says about Joshua. The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general, now listen to this, is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and Marsh Arabs. That's a big sentence. But watch what Dawkins does. When Dawkins, when Dawkins looks at the story, 
he sees a story in which God doesn't actually speak to people because he doesn't believe that he exists. No miracles are performed. There's no Exodus event. But then he goes on to judge all the characters as if God hadn't actually told them to do something. In other words, he's watered down the historicity of the narrative, and then he attacks the remaining narrative. Now, again, if we're going to judge the morality of a narrative, we need to treat the narrative with utter integrity with all its aspects. So when you take the narrative of the Old Testament, you need to begin with the beginning of the story. In the beginning, God gave everyone life. He's the author of life. That's actually a part of the story. You can't miss that out. That it's actually there. It's, in, it's there. Within this narrative itself, we also learn the commands given to Joshua and Moses were given in a very miraculous context, right? The Exodus. I mean, imagine the Exodus for them, the 10 plagues splitting of the seas, and then God coming for 40 years. You could visibly go, there's a pillar of fire and a cloud leading us. Now, within that narrative, you can't, you can't just say, well, I don't believe that happened. The point is in the story, that's an integral part in terms of looking at it from the characters in the story, the Israelites, they would have no reason to doubt God's commands as judicial representatives for this purpose in unveiling and unraveling God's working. They would have reasonable warrant as would those jets scrambled or grounds that these commands are coming from a good God, which is very different, very different from the analogies that people use today you know, where I, where I heard God's voice, or I want to start a massive, you know, a race that's just going to be the best race, or, or, you know, even Islamic religious exegesis leaders who get together and say we can attack random targets. That's very different than a voice booming from the clouds to 603,550 men. authenticating this is really God whom we've seen for these 40 years. Moreover, you could say within the narrative, the Canaanites are judged for their wickedness, not for their race. That's really important. They're judged for their wickedness. One evidence of that is Rahab, who is a Canaanite, she's able to join Israel. Biblically, all this will be on the screen. We read this. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations because of these detestable things, the Lord, your God will drive them out before you. I love, if you can go home and read the whole chapter nine, but I love this. Do not say in your heart after the Lord, your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. This moment, exceptional in, the, in God's story and plan, is not about them. He, he will tell them, you're not better. It's because of my righteousness. No, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So according to the narrative, God was furious with the Canaanites, and he should have been. Listen, even by ancient standards, the Canaanites were a gruesome people. They were grossly immoral. Some of the stuff I can't even include because it's just really bad. But 
In, a div- in addition to divination, witchcraft, female and male temple, sex, Canaanite adultery, which includes all sorts of crazy weird bestiality that I don't want to talk about, disgusting practices. One of them was child sacrifice. There's a reason in the Bible God says, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. Sure, Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity represented kind of as an upright bull-headed idol. Here's a picture with a human body and whose belly a fire was stoked and whose outstretched arms a child was placed that would be burned to death. And it was not just infants, children as old as four. How many of you have a four-year-old? They would, they would burn their four-year-olds in, the, in Molech's arms. Here's what one historian and scholar, Clay Jones, from Viola, Viola University says, a bronze image of Kronos was set up among them, stretching out its cupped hands above a bronze cauldron, which would burn the child. As the flame burning the child surrounded the body, the limbs would shrivel up and the mouth would appear to grin as if laughing until it was shrunk enough to slip into the cauldron. Archaeologists' evidence indicates that children were burned to death, sometimes numbered in the thousands. The goddess of sex and war in, this, in these nations, Ashtar, was horrifically violent. She decorated herself with suspended heads and hands attached to a girdle. She exalted in brutality and butchery, like she would butcher your body before you died. So it's a, it's a false picture to say that the Canaanites were innocent people just minding their own business. They were extremely debauched and wicked people. And you could make an argument because God is God and sovereign. He would know what if that continued on. Greg Kukul points out, indeed, what, we, what would we say of a God who perpetually sat silent in the face of such wickedness? Would we not ask, where was God? Would we not question his goodness, his power, or even his existence if he did not eventually vanquish this evil? Yet when God finally does act, we are quick to find fault with this, quote, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Not so. He's a good, good God. Also, in the narrative, and many atheists miss this one, God does most of the battling. He's the one who makes the walls of Jericho fall down. He's the one who, when they're all assembled, sends hailstones, which Joshua 10 says kills most of them. And Dawkins might say, well, I don't believe in God. But your response needs to be, well, God is the biggest character in the Old Testament. He's the biggest character in the narrative. So even if you don't believe in God, you still need to judge the morality of the story, treating God as a real character in the story. And in this narrative, and in our ultimate reality, God is real. And if he is God, who clearly doesn't think violence is good because in the beginning there was none, who's clearly, if you read the Bible, if you gave an atheist the entire Bible and said, does God hate evil? And they read the whole book, they'd be like, yeah. Even when you look at the end of the story, even in the Old Testament where prophets talk about the last days, we read a vision of peace where a wolf lies with the lamb. So it's not this vindictive God. Furthermore, it's also important to keep in mind on some 
of these, well, let me say this first. It, it, it would mean if God is, and he's the maker and the ruler of all things, he has absolute right and ownership of all people and places. In this story, we also learn what we all deserve. Like God does not owe us anything. You have to say that at some point. You have to go back to the sermon we did on original sin and say, this is what we believe about who we are. All of us deserve judgment. For some in the Old Testament, they got it in real time. For others, they will get it after they die. All sin will be judged because God is actually a really great, loving, good God. He really is a character in the story. It's also important to keep in mind when you read the Old Testament, here's another just sub-lens. In some of these messy stories that are ultimately pointing to the work that Jesus will fulfill, like it's not descriptive for us to run into a boat, get eaten by a whale. It's not descriptive for us. God never tells another human being to go sacrifice your son. God's working in a very specific time for a specific moment, for specific purposes to point to a Messiah who's gonna fulfill it all. It's important to keep in mind that when the Bible describes an event or even you know, stuff that we're like, what? It doesn't necessarily condone it. It's telling us a story. There's principles, there's commands in it. There's things that when God was and going to speak into that thing, he does so. There's weird things like after an army is taken out by God himself, by an angel, what do you do with the women and children? Well, you get to marry them. So what do you do with that? That's tough. You have to, God's working within an economy at that point in that time. The other nations would just rape them and kill them. They're actually not allowed to touch them for a whole month. And then they're supposed to help them integrate into a religion. Like the Bible is a messy book dealing with its own time and place. But it doesn't mean that God approves every action of every character. Most are condemned. Just, you know, there's no ancient literature like the Bible. Every ancient literature that we have, that we still have records have, don't actually speak that ill about their own people group <laughs> the way the Bible does. So it's just an interesting book. Okay, here's a similar objection because since we're on this topic and I don't read the clock anymore until we go to two gatherings. Um, what about all the wars? What about, okay, I can, you can make an argument for that and actually that was helpful, but... Um, what about like the wars and all the stuff that religions have caused? Like, like what about the crusades or what about the German pastors who joined Hitler or, or, you know, all the, you know, this crazy Protestant and Catholic killing in, in Northern Ireland. And what do we do? What do you, what do you say to, what do you say to all those who embraced, not all those, but many Christians embracing African slavery. It's interesting, Martin Luther, king who spoke into that the most powerfully, went back to their Bible and said, you don't know your Bible. 
when he gave his incredible speech. He doesn't run away from scripture. He presses more into it. But your answer is clearly that is wrong. Those are clear failures to living up to Jesus' teaching. And here's Jesus' teaching. Love your enemy. Leave it to the wrath of God. Pray for those who abuse you. Lay your life down for the world. Don't kill in order to spread the gospel, but die to spread it. You will lose your life in this one. Blessed are you when men persecute you. If you read one of the letters to the churches, it's like you're gonna die in eight days. Stay faithful. Same God of the Old Testament. So you would need to say, those are moral failures that God would condemn. We, we, we need to own that in that we need to say we can't justify any of that evil. But not everyone who claims to be a Christian is authentically one. That's true. Jesus talked a lot about seeds that three would look really, really strong, but only one is the true. Jesus talked a lot about the, that many will people say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these amazing Christian works in your name? And he's like, I didn't know you. That's a true reality. You have to say that. That's a real factor in the answer to that really hard question. Especially, this is huge, in places where Jesus is not so much a ticket to martyrdom, but to power. You, you have a country where Jesus or a nation, like you look at Constantine and the historicity of all that stuff. When you have Jesus and the state coming together as a, as a power-based thing, you are not authentically walking with Jesus most of the time and are probably not a true follower of Jesus. There are true followers and there are not. Second, the Bible teaches to expect moral failure from Christians. Rebecca, who's uh, McLaughlin, who's an apologist, says, we are not naturally good people who behave badly only if we have, only if we have been depraved of the proper upbringing, education, and circumstances. Rather, we are innately sinful. So we do have to acknowledge that was wrong. But here's my question. I borrow this as well. If I could show that reading Dawkins' God delusion caused someone to do something bad, then would that also show that his God delusion was a bad thing? Like, if I could show the classic book like Darwin's Origins of Species led some people to infer from them that, you know, they could develop a master race and lead to genocide and so on, can I impugn you know, Charles Darwin with great immorality. Like, I, I would argue and I would say more good has come from those who've read the Bible than anything bad things people do after they read it. In fact, I mean, you just look at early church. I mean, you know, people use those tiny examples, but if you look around the early church, Josephus said the Christians were known, if you remember in our first sermon for the most incredible acts of generosity and like staying true to their spouse and they, they've always they this amazing claim of Jesus resurrection offered such hope that evil won't triumph that it changed the first century even this is one time magazine I can give you the author after if you if you want but 
because I don't have it here. But she wrote this go to, of today. Go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison, rape, um, obstetric fistulia, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or in brackets conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live out their faith. You, you would have, you would, you would be hard-pressed to make an argument that, that the Bible produces people who are wanting to do evil or, or is dangerous. The end. So here's, here's how I want to close. Oh, no, 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 no. Here's how I want to close. Um, I want you to tell God what's hard for you to believe. Like, I don't know if we've done this yet. Like, I, I, I want you to tell God, as we respond, so Jordan, you can come up, what you struggle with. I just want you to tell him that. And I want you to say, it's hard for me to trust you because blank, whatever it is for you. But I just, I want, I, you know, I, I want you to really spend time with him right now. Like come to him just raw. Like he's not afraid to hear your objections or your objections, or your, your issues, or your suspicions. But I want you to get, get it out. It's hard for me to trust you because of this. And the reason I want to go here is because two things I felt the Spirit do. Number one, There, in those objections, we still are putting one foot on the throne and I, I just wrote here, stop holding on as if you're on the throne. One of the first aspects of humility when you tell God, here's what I'm struggling with, with you, is you're surrendering your rights to who God is. If you're a follower of Jesus, you submit to the Bible's self-revelation of the nature and character of God. And if there's an attribute of God that you don't like or you don't believe fully, you need to tell him that. You need to surrender your rights, your, your angst, and you will be free. You're not free until you do that. And here's what you need to hear. God is a father. That's what you have to think about. God is a father. He's, he cares about your soul. He's a good father. Your God is your father. And I want you to listen to what he says. So I want you to tell him how you feel. And he might speak to you. And I want you to listen 
And then I want you to look at the elements that we're about to celebrate in communion. And before you come up and serve one another, I want you to look at the cross and the elements. And I want, to think, I want you to think about how beyond deserving you were, if that was really true and that event happened for you. And I want you to ask him to give you strength to trust. Because here's the truth. I remember I couldn't sleep last night because a little charismatic, but I had a voice kept telling me that I'm, I wasn't saved. There are demons who will lie to you every moment. If you're not anchoring in who God is, you take that voice and this objection and you will spin out. So you either, you either trust him or you don't. You either read a verse that says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You know who was more than a conqueror last night? I was on that bed, whether I believed it or not, because of what Christ had done. I was a sleeping, trying to sleep conqueror and that had nothing to do with my battle thoughts. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, that's talking about demons, nor anything present nor anything to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Woo! Let's stand, let's just clap a little bit. Woo! Yes! That's good. So you come when you're ready, celebrate Jesus. And here's what I want you to believe because you're gonna say it in communion. We got one sentence we're gonna say today. And you're gonna say, you are his beloved son or daughter with whom he is well pleased. Eat this in remembrance of him. When Jesus came out of baptism, that's what the father said over him and he hadn't done anything yet. And that's who you are in Christ. You're a child of God. You're loved. So wrestle with him a little bit. And then remember, he's a father and he loves you and he sent his son to die for you. And if you're not a Christian, you should become a Christian today. It's amazing. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that we're gonna sing and respond. And I pray in Jesus' name that demons would leave if they have any footholds. And I just pray in Jesus' name that you would restore us, that you'd silence the enemy. I thank you that he cannot bite.
he can gnaw and he can lie, but your word is true. And I thank you that you rose from death and your victory. And when you come back, it's gonna be amazing. So just help us listen. I just pray we would really not waste this time. In Jesus' name, amen.